darkness. Before the war, there was a lot of talk at home about Hitler. Caricatures of Hitler began appearing in the Yiddish papers, and some articles suggested that life would be hard for our men if they did not run away. Even my father decided to leave, and he starting walking to the Soviet Union. But he soon came back. I don't think he could bear to abandon his family. In my family, nobody ran away. I don't know whether they had the means to flee, and they had families to look after. But a lot of men left. Lots of people escaped, mostly to the Soviet Union, people with money who got smuggled out. At the time, no one knew that only weeks later the war would begin and the Soviets would take over part of Poland. They would ultimately send people who refused to take on Soviet citizenship to Siberia and other places in the harsh interiors of the Soviet Union. Some people survived Siberia. Others died there. The Gera Rebbe and his family did manage to escape Poland. For the first several months after the Nazis occupied Poland, the Germans were looking for him because he was one of the most important sages and leaders of the Jewish Hasidic community and was respected not only by the whole Jewish community, but also by the Polish community. After the war, I heard that at the same time that one group of Gestapo officers was tasked with arresting him, a prominent group of his supporters succeeded in smuggling him and his family out of Poland. In 1959, a short book was published in Hebrew called Nes Hatzara Shel HaRebi Miger, The Miraculous Rescue of the Rebbe of Ger. And it tells how, in April 1940, he and his family boarded a train that left Warsaw for Italy. From there, a ship got them to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. All that encompassed our life before the war came to an end on September the 1st, 1939, when I was just seven years old. On the first day of the war, my mother and I were on a train from Shavnitsa to Wuj. My parents had sent me back to Shavnitsa a second time. I don't know why exactly, but this time the Ger Rebbe was there with his entourage. I was on a boat with him on the Dunayets River. He and several of his followers were sitting in the back of the open boat on a wooden bench discussing the Torah. I, meanwhile, was flitting about, fascinated by the fast-moving river and the man who was rowing us on it. I even asked him if I could hold the oar and row. My grandfather was already sick by the time, and my father had given me a supplication to give to the Rebbe, who said to me in Yiddish, The Almighty will help him to make a full recovery. That first day, there was a lot of traffic. Suddenly, airplanes appeared and began strafing the train. The train stopped, and everybody got off and ran to the ditches to hide. When the raid stopped, we got back on the train and it continued on, but the strafing occurred a few more times before we got to Wood. 
My memory of getting off the train during the air ride is vague, but I recall the panic of the crowd. I don't remember being frightened when the train was being strafed by aeroplane fire. I was never frightened when I was a child. I reacted to tensions I felt from my parents, but I don't recall ever having the emotion of being terribly frightened myself. We finally reached home, and the next memory I have is of what was going on in the house. I didn't quite understand it at the time, but my parents, especially my mother, were extremely tense. I could feel the enormous sense of tension. My mother's family, her parents, her brother, his wife and child and her sister, all lived in Vielun, which was near the German border, and she hadn't heard from them. When they still hadn't arrived on Foroshashana, which was almost two weeks after the war started, my mother was beside herself. There's an expression in Yiddish, Choshech Mitzrayim, literally darkness in Egypt, that comes from the Hebrew and means pitch black darkness, reflecting one of the plagues in Egypt. That's what my mother kept saying as she walked around the house. Eventually, they did all arrive. We were so relieved. I recall seeing my grandparents, Shimshon and Miral, my uncle, his wife and their baby, and my mother's youngest sister, who wasn't married at the time. Much later, I learned that Vielon had been under siege on the very first day of the war and that much of the population, both Jewish and Gentile, had fled as the army came in, which was probably why my extended family hadn't been able to communicate with my mother. The first time that I really felt fear was about seven or eight days after the war started. I have no memory of real time then, but I know from research that the Nazis arrived in Wuj on September the 8th. Since they had no opposition, there had been no bombing in Wuj and the Germans came in quickly. Nazi officials compiled a list of prominent people in Wuj, Jews and non-Jews, and immediately went about rounding them up. My grandfather, as the head of a yeshiva, as well as of an organization called Marzikei Hadad, Upholders of the Faith, was on that list. I found documents after the war that proved he was involved in this organization, which worked to keep faith strong among Jews, and that is why he was on the Nazis' list. At this time, my grandfather was 78 years old and recuperating from a recent operation to remove kidney stones. He was lying in bed, still sick and weak, when the doorbell of his apartment rang. Since we lived next door to my grandfather, when his bell rang, we heard it. My father, who was at home, because nobody was working due to the war, went over and opened the door. Two men from the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police, dressed in black Macintoshes, asked for my grandfather, Yitzhak Meyer My father led them into the bedroom where my grandfather was. I was in the bedroom that day, and I remember all of this quite clearly. 
When the men saw my grandfather, an old man with a grey beard, looking half dead, they asked my father what was wrong with him, and my father answered that he had recently had an operation and was very ill. I suppose they must have decided that it wasn't worth taking him, since he didn't look like he was going to make it anyway. So they asked my father who he was, and my father responded that he was the man's son. When they asked my father what he did for a living and heard that he was a winemaker, they then asked him where he made the wine, and my father had to reveal the location. The Gestapo took my father away. My mother, along with her whole family, was terrified, not knowing what was going to happen to him. My mother had always been a tense person, even before the war, which I had seen when I was ill. But from the day one of the war, the light went out of her. We were told afterwards by our caretaker, who looked after our wine cellar, that the Gestapo had gone and ordered the gendarmerie, the military police, to stop at the cellar and help themselves to whatever was there. Apparently, there were about 11,000 bottles of wine, whiskey and liqueur, as well as the many vets where the wine was maturing. They took all the bottles and then broke open the vets and poured the wine out into empty jerry cans. The caretaker went down to the cellar and found my father badly beaten and lying unconscious in a corner. Curfew was in effect already, and the caretaker risked his own life by carrying him home on his back. My father was unconscious for four or five days after that. But Dr. Hirschwinkel, who had treated me when I was sick, helped him to recover. That was my first encounter with the Nazis, who just 48 hours after they had arrived had destroyed an enterprise generations of my family had built over almost 100 years. As the war was raging, the Zilbersteins couldn't go back to Vielun, so the whole family stayed with us in Wuj. But we weren't there much longer. After the experience he'd had in the wine cellar, my father was worried that the Nazis were going to come back. Besides, there was an enormous amount of terror against Jews in Wuj, right from the beginning of the occupation. Every day, there was a new law telling us what we were no longer allowed to do. Anyone who had a shop had to hand it over to an Aryan. There were approximately... 100,000 Germans living in Wuj, left over from the Prussian and the Austro-Hungarian empires. These people, who were Polish citizens, were called Volksdeutsche, ethnic Germans. They were given round swastika lapel pins to wear on their coats and distinguished them from everyone else. And they were allowed to take over shops owned by Jews. Any Jew who worked for the municipality or police or who was a lawyer or other professional working for a firm was fired. The Nazis froze the bank accounts of Jews. They began taking Jews to do forced labor and randomly rounded people up and killed them. In November, we were informed 
that Wuch was going to be evacuated of all non-Germans, and my father decided to send us to Warsaw to stay with his sister, my aunt Sabina. Jews weren't allowed on the trains, but we were blonde, blue-eyed twins, and my mother looked like a Scandinavian beauty. All three of us also spoke fluent Polish, so there was a good chance we wouldn't be detected. My parents told me they had to cut off my payers for the trip, but I began crying hysterically and refused to let them. My payers were part of me, and I couldn't imagine myself without them. My mother, persistent, chased me around the apartment and finally caught me and put me down on a chair. I cried as she took off my head, chopped off my blonde pears with scissors, and combed back my hair so I would look Polish. Then we packed some suitcases and went to the train station, where my mother instructed us to speak only Polish. It seemed as though everyone wanted to get out of Łódź. There were thousands of people trying to get on the trains. It took a long time to get tickets, but we finally did, and then the train was so crowded that we had to stand because there were no seats. There was a well-dressed middle-aged German man on the train who took a shine to my mother. He began helping my mother with our parcels and got us seats in a compartment on the crowded train. I could see that my mother was terrified. He wouldn't leave us alone and kept talking to her all the way to Warsaw, no matter how she tried to put him off. When we finally arrived in Warsaw, he told her he had a limousine waiting for him and wanted to give us a ride to wherever we were going. My mother kept telling him that it wasn't necessary that there would be someone waiting for us. But he didn't want to hear it, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. He said that his chauffeur would take us, and he grabbed our suitcases and put us in the limousine with him. When he asked where we were going, and she replied Ulica Elektralna 14, an address that was in a predominantly Jewish area of Warsaw, his interest evaporated, and he couldn't wait to get rid of us. He didn't kick us out exactly, but as soon as we neared the street, he threw us out with our suitcases. Some other members of the family also came to Warsaw around the time we did, like my uncle Zalman's sons Noah and my father's elder sister Esther and her husband Moishe Shloyme Levinson. Later on, we all spread out, but in the beginning, there were about 17 people staying at the apartment of my aunt Sabino and Uncle Vovo Spiegelglas, including Sabina and her husband and their two children. Like my parents, they had a boy and a girl, but they were much older than my sister and I. When we got there, I was assigned to sleep in Aunt Sabina's daughter's room, where one whole wall was covered in bookcases. The books were mostly in Polish, and some of them were textbooks, because she had recently finished gymnasium. I read them from cover to cover, even though I didn't always understand what I was reading. When more people began to arrive, there was less room and fewer beds, for everyone, so I slept on a cot in a corridor with Noah. 
It was a very cold winter that year, one of the coldest on record in Warsaw, and all the window glass had been blown out in the bombing, so it was freezing. I mostly lay in bed under the covers and read in the crowded little apartment. In December 1939 or January 1940, the Germans did something that I didn't know was possible until it happened to us. One day, we were all lying in bed due to the cold. The windows were covered with cardboard or newspapers, and we covered ourselves with shawls or blankets and duvets, whatever we could find. No one got up early, since we had nowhere to go. We simply stayed in bed trying to keep warm. It must have been nine or ten in the morning when suddenly the doorbell rang and three men dressed in Macintoshes and hats like the Gestapo war came barging into the apartment. They could have been anybody, really, Nazi security forces or regular police or even ordinary Germans, but in the end it didn't really matter. One of them took out a revolver and ordered all of us to undress completely. He demanded that we stand facing the wall with our hands up against it. And he said that if anyone turned around while they were there, he would shoot them dead on the spot. We all did as we were told and stood there shivering. As a Hasidic boy, I had never seen anyone naked, especially not a woman. I had only ever seen a man without clothes when my father took me to the mikvah, the ritual bath, and then only by accident. Modesty was so important in our lives that even if I had been able to look, I would have averted my eyes. And here, my eldest aunt, Chocha Esther, who was 50 then and had grown up children, and my aunt Sabina, who was much younger, my aunt and Uncle Levinson's and my cousins, even my mother and my sister, all of them naked. This scared me, not because I was worried that the men would hit me or kill me, but because I didn't understand what was going on. Life had been turned upside down. We stood there for what seemed an eternity to me, but it must have been about 20 minutes to an hour while they ransacked the apartment. When they were finished, the same voice that had spoken before, the one with the revolver, said they were going to leave and we had better not move until they had banged the door shut and were gone. Otherwise, he said he was going to shoot us all. As soon as they left, everyone dressed quickly and took in what they had done to the apartment. It was a mess and anything of value had been taken. The Shabbos candlesticks, the Kiddush cups, whatever they thought might have worth. I particularly remember the candlesticks because on Friday night there was nothing to place the candles in for Shabbos. The incident upset us all, but it didn't impact me to the extent that it did the grown-ups. I probably did not fully grasp the meaning of what had happened. I continued with my reading living mostly in my own head. When I wasn't reading, I was out in the streets. My sister never ventured outside. She barely left my mother's side. But I was always out in the streets. 
I was blonde, blue-eyed boy who spoke Polish perfectly, so I suppose that my mother wasn't that worried about letting me out, and luckily nobody touched me. As for me, I wasn't afraid, even though terrible events were swirling around me. I was taking it all in, so I don't know why I wasn't afraid. I think my mind just went blank. I had no feelings at all. I had disengaged myself from what was happening. It was as if my eyes were cameras and my brain was the screen. I just recorded everything without emotion or participation. What the Nazis had done in Łódź was now happening in Warsaw. The Nazis set up a Judenrat, a Jewish community council, that was responsible for, among other things, gathering Jews for slave labor details. Sometimes, the Judenrat had to deliver five or 6,000 Jews every day. Other times, it was hundreds. Warsaw had been badly damaged in the months-long bombardment at the beginning of the war, and many buildings had been destroyed. Instead of using bulldozers, the Nazis used Jews to clear the rubble and repair the road. The airports, which were now used by the military and whatever else needed repair. Along with tradespeople and storekeepers, they took yeshiva bochers, young religious men, as well as doctors, lawyers, and professionals, people who had never done any physical labor in their lives, and made them work as slaves in the streets. The Nazis immediately enlisted informers, of whom there were plenty to find out who the rich and influential Jews were in the city. Jews were subjected to all kinds of dreadful treatment, and our situation quickly became chaotic. Jews had become outlaws. We weren't safe in the streets anymore. Even secular Jews, who may not have been recognizable as such, could be targeted by a Polish Gentile who might start pointing and saying, Jude, 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 Jew, Jew, Jew. Then a German or Polish hooligan would often rob and beat the Jewish person. Anybody who wasn't Jewish could stop a Jew in the street and take what they wanted. I don't think most honest and decent people did that, but those who did were particularly dangerous. When young hooligans saw a Jew, they would stop him and beat him, and if he had a watch, they would tear it off him, or go through his pockets and take all his money. I saw them doing it. From the start, there were so many rules and regulations restricting Jews. We had to take off our hats when we saw a soldier. We couldn't go into the parks or walk on the pavement. We were forced to walk in the middle of the road and we couldn't ride in regular streetcars. In the beginning, before the ghetto was established, there were specially designated streetcars for Jews, with the Jewish star on the front. There was rationing right away too, so from the start it was difficult for Jews to buy food. When Jews came to a shop, they would get shoved to the end of the line or kicked out altogether, not only by the Germans, but also by the Poles. My mother decided in order for us to get food, I, as a Polish-looking boy, would have to go to the shop. This may be for the first six or eight weeks, until my father came back, the provisions provider for the 17 people who lived in my aunt's apartment. Some of the scenes I saw in Warsaw were horrific. 
ordinary German soldiers on leave, not Nazis, amused themselves by collecting a few Jews and cutting off their beards and even some skin underneath, making them bleed. Or they would grab young Jewish girls in the street and make them dance like monkeys. And the Polish police, or the blue police as we called them because they wore blue uniforms, would just stand by. I don't know whether they collaborated with the Nazis at first, but soon enough, as early as 1940, the Polish police collaborated happily. They didn't wait for the evacuations to begin or for the resettlements. Right from the beginning, you could do anything you wanted to a Jew, and they did. 